Greetings, Iditarod Nation. Welcome to the Iditarod Tales from the Trail podcast. I am your host, Kristen, and today we have our guest, Dallas Seavey, five-time champion of the Iditarod now. Welcome, Dallas. Yeah, I'm looking forward to having this chat with you. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to talk about sled dogs. Yeah, and we are excited to have you here. Um, so, how are you? How is the team? You've had uh, some time now since your win, of course. Everyone wants to know how the dogs are, too. Well, let's start with the dogs. Yep, um, they're doing great. You know, it's it's always a fun time in the spring. Uh, just after a busy year of training and racing and kind of a lot of pressure that goes along with that, to be able to just kind of relax and it's our, our kind of downtime and you see this almost puppyish attitude come out with the dogs where I think they understand that the the intensity level is very different so we're just kind of doing fun stuff hanging around um, and they all just start goofing around and acting like puppies in the dog yard because they're not getting quite the same level of exercise that they have been throughout most of the winter so during the day when it's sunny like right now we're seeing these beautiful spring days they're laying around and just being lazy. And then as soon as it starts cooling off at in the evening or in the night, they all start running back and forth, up and down their zip lines, playing with their neighbors and just being puppyish. So they're doing great. I, on the other hand, am uh, pretty busy. It seems like this year without going to Nome um, and having kind of that required week of just hanging out in Nome, which is a great recovery time for mushers. This year, I kind of just went back to my house and straight back to work. And now we're busy getting ready for our summer tourism operation. So <clears throat> after uh, the Iditarod in general, the dogs kind of hang out and, you know, it's melting a little bit now. Um, last time we were at your place, your kennel, you had a quite a bit of snow. Is it is it melting down? Uh, I know around Wasilla area, we're, we're getting to see ground now. <laughs> it, it's probably in the muddy stage where you're at and um it gets a little it's gonna get a little dirty here for the dogs for a little bit huh well you know i think first of all we, we're really fortunate in our our setup there and i guess that's kind of by design um so right now we still have everything's pretty white the areas that were plowed like the roads and the parking areas those were starting to see some some gravel come through um but everything else is pretty white However, it's not going to last much longer. So we had, I think, temperatures like 62, 63 degrees yesterday, and the snow is going super fast. So in one of my parking areas, I've got a small lake. Actually, my daughter had the canoe out there paddling around earlier. So um, there's a small lake going on, a seasonal lake. But uh, fortunately, with our dog yard, as soon as that snow melts, it's on a good angle, and it's got tons of gravel. It's on uh, an old riverbed, actually. So um, they go from being on snow and ice to pretty much instantly being on, on nice dry gravel. I think that's one of the things I was really looking for when we moved up to Talkeetna from Willow, um, or anytime you're looking to set up a large kennel, is that really good surface to have dogs on. Something that drains really well. Yeah, I know um, our little temporary lake that we get in the front of our house <laughs> in Wasilla is pretty much drained out now. It's been so nice. Um here in the area so so did you get any downtime at all after the Iditarod I know it was weird with not being in Nome and you were saying that's kind of like a nice 
downtime for uh, about a week or so. Um, and then you have lots of planning to do. And it sounds like, did you get any fun time at home, rest time uh, with your daughter? I did. Actually, for me, the week after I did it all this year was really busy, just nothing fun, just business stuff, trying to get caught up with having been gone. And of course, I had neglected a lot of the business side of things in the weeks leading up to the Iditarod. So uh, I, I hit it pretty hard right after the Iditarod. And then, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 days after the race, I did escape um, and got, got to a little bit warmer climate for a few days. And that was very much needed. But I'm back now and uh, kind of recharged at least a little bit kind of attack the summer season we got coming up and yeah maybe do this all over again well, well it's been a few years since you have been on the iditarod trail what was your take on the gold trail loop no first of all i was really happy to be part of that kind of unique trail you know it's hard to judge something as better or worse it's just simply different uh, I was so grateful that there was an Iditarod this year. And I know that took a tremendous effort from a lot of different people, from you know the, the folks that support this race and put on this race, and you know the villages and the, the communities that we go through and the extra hoops they had to jump through to be able to host us during the COVID times. And then, of course, the villages we weren't able to go through, which was kind of, kind of a disappointment that we weren't able to be there. But I, I hope to get to see them all next year. So... I think I just want to say, first off, I'm just so happy that this went and I'm happy that I got to be part of this unique trail. So I don't want to, again, I'm not going to say it's better or worse than the normal trail. The normal trail is the iconic classic Iditarod trail. But when I look back over a career of mushing, I'm very happy and thankful to have been part of the 2015 Iditarod and the 17, of course, that went from Fairbanks and now the 2021 race going kind of from Deshka back to Deshka, the gold trail loop. So, uh, it's different, but every once in a while doing those different trails is kind of fun. It presented us with a new challenge and kind of a new problem to solve. And that's one of the things I love most about mushing is is coming up with creative ways to solve these new problems. And sometimes the problems we create ourselves as far as you know trying to innovate or do things differently. Other years, the problems are presented by weather, like 2014. You know, we're, we're faced with a very big challenge and we have to solve it as we go. This year, it was kind of a unique cross. It was a different and unique challenge, but we had just enough time to prepare for it and to try to understand the nature of the trail and what was going to be different, not from a human point of view, but from a dog's point of view. How was this experience going to be different for the dogs? And how do I set them up for success on that different trail? So I, I really enjoyed it, to be perfectly honest. Any um, specific challenges that you had this year that um, maybe you wouldn't have had on on a normal trail? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, so some of this gets into the the kind of game strategy aspect that's a little bit more removed from the what we generally think of as a challenge for a musher, you know, like a big storm or, you know, open water crossings, things like that. But for me, it started with identifying what is inherently different about this race. Um, you know, the trail is the trail. If we're going over a mountain or you know, going back over the Alaska Range twice, all right, that's a difference. But we can quantify that as a musher. I know how to gauge my dog's energy levels so that they are prepared for the difficulty of the trail in front of them. On a much easier flat section of trail, maybe I would you know take a little bit less rest. Um, 
they would certainly need less rest after completing that run because they would have expended less energy to accomplish that course or section of the trail. But this year, the two big changes that stood out to me structurally in the race were one, the length of the race. It's going to be a shorter race. And look at any race, whether it's, uh, you know, animals, humans, even even auto type races, the shorter it is, generally the faster it is. So we knew right off the bat that if this thing was going to be some significant portion shorter, which it was, we are going to have to increase our pacing. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean running faster, but it means accomplishing more miles each day, whether that time is spent running or resting. Secondly, um, the race was shortened, but the amount of mandatory rest remained the same. And so that mandatory rest, our mandatory 24 the mandatory eight that is generally taken somewhere on the Yukon River. And finally, the mandatory eight, usually in White Mountain, this year in Squintna. Those three mandatory rests would represent a larger portion of our overall resting time. So it became important to maximize those rests more than ever before. So those were the tactical things that I, I took a look at. From the dog's point of view, you know, it was going to be a different trail. We weren't going to have the Bering Sea coast. It was going to be more quick-footed technical mushing for the dogs with going through the farewell burn twice, going over the Alaska range twice. So I did spend more time training on really similar twisty, windy trails where the dogs got very comfortable going over that, you know, more, again, technical from a dog's point of view where they have to be agile and quick-footed. They're, they're running mates so that they can jump over the line and and make room for each other as they do that. So we did prepare them a little more for that, as well as a little more climbing practice. Felt that the team was really well prepared in that regard. And diff- and to be able to give me a wider range of tools to work with, I really focused on this being a team that was versatile, that they could take a one-hour break and go do a 30-mile run and do a really short run, short rest cycle if they needed to, but they also had the ability to stretch out and do long hauls if we needed to. That's something we never really had to play this year, but um, we had the ability to do a wide range of different styles. And this gives me as a coach more options of ways to handle changes. You know, and some of the changes this year were that they, they removed, you know, the, the flat loop from Iditarod to flat back to Iditarod and small changes like that, that adjust the distance of the race mid race we have to be prepared to you know, accommodate and adjust for. And having a flexible team helps me accommodate for those changes. You know, a lot of people asked about um, would mushers have to, to do a lot of passing because you're doing that loop around. And then so maybe some mushers would still be go, getting to into Iditarod or something. Uh, was that at all issued? I, I mean, I'm assuming... I guess we assume mushers are used to doing passing in general anyway in a normal year. So maybe it wasn't any different. Mm-hmm. You know, that that is something that got a lot of attention. Two things. One was um, passing the teams. And when I say got a lot of, of attention, I mean prior to the race. These were things that were being discussed quite a lot. Uh, passing other teams. And then also the fact that the dogs would turn around and come back over the same trail. And if that would cause any any anxiety or problems for the dogs. And again, I try to look at all these things from the dog's point of view. And my simple question is, how is this different than what the dogs do every other day in their lives? 
most every musher, when they train their dogs, it's actually pretty rare that we don't turn around and come back over the same trail. For example, you're going to leave from your kennel and you're going to go training. Maybe you're going to just do a 50 mile run, or maybe you're going to do a 300 mile series of runs. Either way, the odds are the musher on a 50 mile run would go 25 miles away from their house, turn around and come back over that same trail. So I think it's almost more normal for the dogs to come back over the same trail. Depending on where that musher lives, um, the amount of passing they do can be really nominal or really intensive and a lot of it. That's not something that's not common in races, but in the training, the rest of the dog's life, that's very common. So having lived in Willow for the last many years, uh, you know, prior to moving to Talkeetna, it was not uncommon for me to pass 25 or 30 dog teams in a single run on a weekend because there are so many recreational teams and other competitive Iditarod teams and other competitive you know, sprint mushers and mid-distance teams. So the dogs get very used to passing in those types of conditions. Um, you know, Perhaps for somebody like Brent Sass, who lives a little more remote, his dogs may not have gotten as much passing experience over the course of the year. But I personally didn't have any trouble passing. The one thing that was kind of unique for me this year is I was in the lead of the race at that point. So when I turned around and I did a rod and headed back, I was the first team that every single person passed as I went back over the trail. You know, so it may have been different if I was in the middle of the pack and the team that I am currently passing has already passed 25 teams. Um, in some cases, maybe those teams would have gotten better at it. But I think in general, it was probably easier being the first team that these other folks were passing because... You know, it's the dogs aren't tired of it. They're not used to it. They act very businesslike when they passed us as the first team. Later on, perhaps they were starting to get playful or you know wanting to socialize with the other team. So I didn't have any trouble. I think there was only one pass that I actually had to stop the sled, and even that one, I never had to get off the sled. I just had to stop to give the dogs a chance to get lined out a little bit better, and uh, away we went. So the passing was really quite smooth for me. When you're um the, the lead musher and the, and and you have the um, the mushers coming still trying to get to Iditarod. What I I wonder what that's like. It's they're coming. They're still you know trying to get to Iditarod, and here comes Dallas CV up. Oh, he's in the lead. <laughs> that must be so different this year because they're like, oh, here's all these teams coming coming back around already and I'm not even to Iditarod yet. <laughs> uh, you know, perhaps. And, and I would see that maybe being a thing for, let's say, the the mid-lead pack, um, teams that are wanting to be competitive and trying to be competitive and perhaps they're, you know, they, they actually physically see, oh, shoot, I'm, you know, 50 miles behind. I've still got 25 miles to go to the turnaround. Um, maybe that was a thing, maybe not. I don't know. But I, I think in the back of the pack, you know, once you get into the group of mushers that they're just wanting to have a good race, maybe they want to post a personal best time, but they understand that they're not in this to win it this year, maybe in the future. I think for them, it's actually really cool to see what the front of the race looks like. And that's something that most years they don't get to do. If you're running in 30th position on the race and you're maybe, let's say you pull into Caltag and you kind of peripherally know that the lead pack is in Unilacleet or already in Koyuk um, or maybe going through Shack Tulik on the way there, something along those lines. You know that, but you don't get to see that. So I think that was pretty cool for some of them, at least, to get to see those front teams and see what those teams look like 
and understand that, all right, that team might be six or eight or 10 or 24 hours ahead, but it's possible for a team to look very strong and healthy and happy and do it at that pace. I, I, I do think it's informative. And sometimes I wish we did structure races in a way that the, the front and the back of the pack were able to interact more than they do on kind of the traditional Iditarod platform where you just go in one direction. Um, so I don't know. You'd have to ask other mushers. And I'm sure you would get a different answer from each person, whether it was encouraging or exciting or fun or discouraging or something. Um, I'm sure it would depend on the musher and how their particular race was going that year. The passing was definitely on, um, I know, our followers' mind. And actually really neat for our insiders who got to watch the race from home, um, having our insider video crew, you know, being able to just kind of sit in place at some of the checkpoints and just be able to stay there and watch the teams come in and out and more teams were coming in and out uh, because they didn't have to continue up the trail and possibly miss some of the back of the pack mushers. So it was a really good experience, I think, for our viewers, too, and all the fans. Um, so you have you have raced, I think, every possible trail. We've you know, you, you did the Fairbanks race and I think you you won on the Fairbanks route also correct? Yep. Yep. In 15. So you, I think you, you won on every possible route. Did, have you won both North and South routes? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> you know what? I have not run one on a Southern route. Um, and that's kind of, kind of interesting because when I started, I ran my first idea to run in 2005 and I, I do have to throw out there. There is one other route that happened in 2003 that they went to you know, as a Fairbanks start that they went to Caltag and then down to, I want to say Grayling or Anvik and did a turnaround and went back up to Caltag. So it was a Fairbanks start, but instead of going to Huslia, they went farther down the Yukon river. So I was, I was only 16 when that race ran. So I was not able to, to do that one. But, um, anyway, I have not won on the Southern route and of my first many Iditarods, a vast majority were on the Southern route. And I love the Southern route. That's one of my favorite trails. So uh, I'm still hoping to, to win on that one someday, but I haven't gotten very many opportunities. So my first I did rod was in 2005, a Southern route, um, my rookie run, great experience. I didn't run the I did rod the following year. I was still wrestling at that time. So I came back and ran again in 2007 uh, once I was kind of done wrestling. And again, that was a Southern route. The following year, I got married and kind of was trying to figure out what the heck I was doing with my life um, and didn't run. But then I started my own kennel and ran my first Iditarod with my own team in 2009. Again, a Southern route. Um, and then the next year, 2010, my fourth Iditarod was the first time I ever even got to run the Northern route. Then you know, the next year was a, a Southern route again. So I think out of my first five Iditarods, four of them were Southern routes. Now, since then, I've hardly gotten to run the Southern route. I think the last time that I've gotten to mush past Iditarod you know, because this year, of course, we at least went to Iditarod. But for last time that I got to mush to Shagaluk would have been in 2013. Um, so, you know, it'll be a few more years till the Southern route happens again. And it's very likely that it will be 10 years between the two times that I ran the Southern route, despite having run most of those Iditarods. Do you um, think of your, your past races often? Uh, how old were you when you first ran the Iditarod? I turned 18 the day before the race started. Okay. So, uh, 
I was uh, barely old enough. And, uh, yeah, actually, I, I ran the junior Iditarod the weekend before and then turned 18 and ran the Iditarod. Um, but, no, I, I wouldn't say that I think on them often. Um, I, I do – I think about the dog's experience on them often, like what, what went well, what worked. And I try to correlate that to the preparation, to the training – and the type of dogs and kind of where those dogs are in their life cycle. Um, are they younger dogs that have a little more speed and enthusiasm, but not the stability that an older team might have and the steadiness. So I try to learn from those races and I definitely delve into them quite a lot there. I look at past years training a lot, but um, as far as just reminiscing about the trail, not from the perspective of trying to become a better dog driver. No, I, I wouldn't say I think on them a whole lot. I think my goal there is to think about them once I'm too old to do them. <laughs> well, one thing I do need to bring up is your your very popular knit sweater that you wore <laughs> this year. You are now, I guess, a fashion, an Iditarod fashion or mushing fashion aficionado, I think. Um, you had so many comments on that sweater, you might have to become like a sweater spokesperson <laughs> or, or start your own doggy paw sweater line or something. You know, that that's so funny because that's something I was kind of introduced to in, in Norway, of course, wool and um, whatnot is a big part of kind of the Norwegian culture and history and very much still a functional, it is a style, it is a style, but it has a very solid functional root. And in the mushing world, you, I mean, that's just what you use. And so, of course, when I was over there, I was trying to try stuff differently. I was trying to learn. And I found that that's one piece of equipment I'm not sure how I did without for all these years. And anymore, that sweater is honestly one of my favorite pieces of gear, of winter mushing gear. Uh, super, super functional. And the lady who gave it to me when I went to Norway, she knits sweaters and does it as a profession and makes patterns and whatnot. She has beautiful work. I think it's like Valley Knits on Instagram. Um, but anyway, so she gave me the sweater. And at first, I'm like, this is a really beautiful sweater. I kind of feel bad to actually use it the way that I use things, right? Like actually working, running dogs and then I figured, you know, what the heck, I'm never going to get to wear it if I don't just use it. So I was using it in training and whatnot. It's incredibly durable. I put that thing through through all sorts of trials. And um, I, I can't imagine a better piece of gear for breathability, for temperature adjustment. The amount of warmth that it has underneath a parka is huge. But as soon as you take off your park and let air move through it, um, it seems like you can be comfortable inside at 50 degrees or comfortable outside at 10 below with the same thing. It's phenomenal how, how well it works for that. So my intent was not to make a fashion statement, um, but rather I have a very functional piece of equipment that a lady that's very artistic and creative made and made it look beautiful. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that the, that was enjoyed. And I hope to see some people trying it because I'll tell you what, when it comes to mushing gear and musher comfort, that's been the biggest improvement I've had in my, my kit in quite some time as far as musher comfort. And if I'm warm and functioning well, it allows me to take better care of the dog team. If I'm not having to worry about my hands freezing or, you know, the fact that I am sitting here shaking for hours on end because I'm right on the verge of hypothermia. So um, I think it's a great piece of gear. Well, it's, a hun it's wool, correct? Yeah. Wool, it's 100% wool, knit. Yep. Hand knit, Norwegian wool. It's a really tough wool. It's not like a soft... Um, 
you know, merino wool type thing. It is traditional Norwegian hardy wool, and, and it's tough. That's the thing that's really surprised me is how well it's held up. And it doesn't look any different than the day I got it. And I use that not just under other layers, but as an outer layer pretty often. And I certainly don't take it easy on it. Another thing that's quite phenomenal is that it doesn't smell that terrible. Usually when you wear something that much and the stuff that we do with it, it gets to smell pretty bad. But uh, that wool is, I don't know, it does not get smelling bad. I don't think I've ever washed it. Um, and so I'm, I'm pretty pleased with that garment. It's low maintenance. Maybe you might have to, um, just, just frame it. And then next year, you know, don't watch it. You're going to have to wear it next year. Cause it's now the lucky sweater, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I think I have a feeling that sweater will go on many, many more races. And I did rods with me in the future. Well, everybody really enjoyed that. Um, so, um, uh, is there anything, uh, you'd, you'd like to mention um you have a mushing tour business any anything you like to you're op- are you doing that still through the summer as well we're thinking of tourism season now so uh yeah we're, we continue to do tours year round we're just wrapping up our summer season or i'm sorry our winter season which thanks to a very late spring we were able to keep doing tours until just you know well past mid-april which is pretty phenomenal and on our winter tours, it's more of just a, a glimpse into the day in, day in the life of a sled dog and a musher. Um, so it's a little more hands-on touring the racing kennel. There's no separation between the, the tour area and the, the racing area. It's all the same. And the guests actually get to drive their own dog team. All the trails are on my property, and I've designed the trails and built the trails on the property specifically for novice mushers being able to get their first exposure to mushing. So the guests get to drive their own, you know, small team, usually four to six dogs, come back in the kennel, meet every dog in the kennel, say hi to them, kind of see where we're preparing the food for the dogs and how we're training the dogs. And, you know, all the racing dogs are right there. Most days we're either just coming back with a racing team or hooking up a racing team. But now we're transitioning into the summer tours, which are very similar, only there's no snow. So I think we have the only place in Alaska where musher or tourists or guests get to drive their own team of dogs in the summertime. So instead of having a a large wagon or something that the guests are riding on, we have a smaller four-wheeled cart that your guest actually stands up on and drives it like a little chariot. It has, you know, a handlebar that's exactly the same as a bicycle with hand brakes so you can steer it. It's very intuitive because it's a lot like driving a bike, but you're running usually a four-dog team, again, on our custom trails built for that. So it's really neat to see people here in Alaska in June, July, and August getting to experience that that, uh, feel of mushing a dog team, even though what they're standing on has wheels instead of, you know, runners. And then also this year, we've started doing um, some glacier sled dog tours where guests fly up on a helicopter and then actually do get to mush on snow. And that's out of Knick, out of the Knick River Lodge there with Alpha Aviation and um, we're really excited about that because this is our first season or my first season doing those glacier sled dog tours. So a lot of our racing dogs and also the two-year-old kind of up-and-coming dogs in the kennel, they're going to get to be on snow and train on snow and stay active on snow most of the summer. So that will be part of our, our training program going into next year's Iditarod. If, if I do race next year's Iditarod, I haven't committed to that just yet. Well, you are certainly busy. <laughs> so, um, is 
Caesar. Where can people find you? Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Um, everyone, I'm sure, is going to enjoy listening to this. Uh, where can people find you on social media, website? Yeah, I uh, so I do most of my stuff on just Dallas CV on Facebook. There's the the athlete page there, and we try to stay pretty active on that. You know, and mostly we're focusing on the dogs. So sharing a lot of a lot of uh, what the dogs are doing. And also stuff that's just relevant to mushing. You know, the type of things that mushers are doing, whether it be food drops or preparing to travel with the dogs to train in a different location. And then what those dogs are doing in the summertime, how they stay active and happy and fit in the kind of air quotes off season for these guys. So Dallas CV on Facebook, um, um, or you can go to DallasCV.com. It'll take you to the same summer. And uh don't seem to stay stay in touch as well as I should. So please do look us up on social there. One one last thing I would like to throw in um, about for me, you know, being back in the Iditarod this year and kind of the different trail where we were just discussing that we got to come back over the same trail and see all the mushers in the race. It was really cool for me to get to see the other teams in the race all the way, you know, from I was in first and going back down the line all the way to to whoever was last place at the moment. You know, to get to see all of them. And what was really fun was how supportive and encouraging everybody was on the race. And it was really, really good to be back on the Iditarod Trail. And I always thought of it as kind of the Iditarod family. And sometimes it is a dysfunctional family. There's no doubt about that. But at the end of the day, there is a group of people that live the Iditarod, not just mushers, but the volunteers and the staff within the race and the whole everything that is the Iditarod the communities we go through along the way. And it is one big happy family, happy most of the time. And that was so cool to be back in, you know, involved with that and part of that. And every single musher I passed as I was coming back, you know, made the turnaround and I did a run heading back, whereas yelling encouragement, um, you know, compliments of the team. It was kind of cool to get to have that interaction and see the other teams and cheer them on and say, you know, looking good, see you down the trail guys, you know, that was really one unique thing about this year's Iditarod that I don't think we've ever had before in the Iditarod. It's kind of getting to have that intermusher connections and kind of conversations all the way back down the line. So it was really fun for me to be back in the Iditarod, back with that Iditarod family. And, um, you know, obviously we had a great race, but just the experience out there was really, really fun. I really enjoyed my time in McGrath on my 24, getting to hang out with with so many mushers and friends that I hadn't seen in many years. And then again in McGrath on my mandatory eight on the way back. Outside of that, I didn't ever stop for very long and then not too many checkpoints. So I didn't get to socialize as much as I'd like, but it was fun since I don't do many of the other mid-distance races. So I really enjoyed that. And I was just super happy to be back and be on that trail this year. Well, we're um, happy to have you back. And I'm sure your fans are, we're really happy to see you back on the Iditarod trail again. And uh, there's a little bit of time, you know, we have to, for you <laughs> to make the decision to come back next year. Um, uh, signups aren't too far off. Uh, it seems like it, the days are going by pretty quick. <laughs> so, um, and of course, once we get to summer, summer goes by really fast too. Uh, but everyone was excited to have you back. Thank you for coming on the podcast again. Um, if you decide to start your own line of sweaters, let me know and we'll have you back on. <laughs> <laughs> no, again, um, 
the, the lady that made this sweater for me and gifted it to me when I was in Norway, you know, she does make these beautiful sweaters and all different patterns and designs. And they're not just beautiful. She's making sweaters. It's kind of cool that something that she's, you know, passionate about and obviously does a great job at it. And she's very talented with it. And uh, I love to support people like that. So, um, yeah, look her up. Get, a, get yourself a fancy Norwegian sweater. I can certainly vouch for it. And it's not just a fashion statement on the trail. It's funny that that's kind of, that's what people mentioned time and again was how stylish or fashionable or how pretty it was. And all I was thinking was this thing is really freaking warm and super functional. But um, we'll see. You know, you're absolutely right. There's not very long until I did a run signups. It's coming right up and this summer will fly by. Um, and I haven't decided whether or not I'm racing. I, I love the Iditarod and I'm excited to be back here and doing that. Really the kind of, I guess, the deciding points for me are on one hand, obviously I love mushing and I've got a fantastic dog team and I want to make sure that these dogs get to show their best side on the Iditarod Trail. And the team next year would be phenomenal. So I'm, I'm very inclined to do that. On the flip side, you know, I've been doing this since I was pretty much 18 and actually well before that, but a vast majority of my adult life has been spent preparing sled dogs for the Iditarod. Um, and I'm still, I like to think that I'm still young enough that I've got time. My dad, you know, he raced in 2020 at, I think he's 60 years old and, uh, finished second. So this is a sport that you can do for a long time and do successfully for a long time. My daughter is going to be turning 11 this summer. And, you know, that's something that isn't going to last for a super long time. So I think what's kind of making me stop and think about it is the other things that uh, may not last for as long. She's only going to be in the house for a few more years. So I think I'm, I'm kind of weighing what I know it costs to be able to race the Iditarod. And I don't mean financially, I mean time. I mean the investment that we have to take from our life to be able to really seriously prepare a team. And I know what it takes to build a, a winning team, or at least to have a chance at winning. And that's a, that's a big cost. And I'm not sure that I want to, you know, take that time away from time that I could spend with, with my daughter and family. And uh, so we'll see. I may take a, a light year here in the next year or two. Uh, may do the I did right every other year. I know I will be in this race for a long time. I just want to space it out so it stays fun and enjoyable. And I feel like I'm not um, neglecting other parts of my life that are also very important to me. Well, there are, there are many ways you can um, stay connected to the Iditarod. Um, we, we, of course, saw you commentary for the, the QPAS series. And, you know, uh, you're, you're going to be around for a long time. So <laughs> you're not going anywhere regardless. <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. We'll be involved with the Iditarod one way or the other. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dallas, again, for coming on the show. Thank you. I appreciate having the opportunity to chat with everybody.